Hey friends, it's Melvin. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Here's just a few quick things I wanted to notify you guys about before we get started. First up, very soon, new episodes will be releasing Wednesday mornings rather than Tuesday. So don't panic if you don't see a new episode on Tuesday. Just wait a little longer and you'll see it in your feed. Second, we've introduced a mailbag. Check those show notes and toward the bottom you'll see a mailbag link. You'll then be able to text us any questions you might have about movies, the movie industry, or any movie-slash-Christian-related questions you might have. Then we'll respond in a future episode, so send us your questions now. Up next, Patreon polls, which are available to Patreon supporters at the $3 tier or higher, have been updated. Supporters can now suggest films or shows to be reviewed at the end of each month. The two most liked submissions will become the options for the Patreon poll, so if you want to hear us talk about your favorite movie or show, join our Patreon and start campaigning. And lastly, whether you're a new or long-time listener, please consider writing a review or rating the Cinematic Doctrine podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Apart from financially supporting on Patreon, these are the two most helpful ways to support the show. And that's it. Enjoy the episode. Hey guys, so just a heads up before you start this episode, I'm trying to figure out some new audio stuff to clean things up, and I basically backslided. And so this episode has a fuzzing noise the entire time. Uh, I'm going to figure that out for the next episode, but for this one, I'm just going to not worry about it. That said, it is a good episode. I'm proud of what I wrote, and I think there's some interesting things. So uh, if you can suffer through the buzzing, you're going to have a good time. So, yay! Hey, my name's Melvin, and the rumor come out. Does Superman is evil? Welcome to Cinematic Doctrine, a spoiler-free Christian movie podcast where we sit at the table of cinema and eat. Tonight we'll be dining on David Yurovesky's Brightburn. David's previous film, The Hive, snuck into the horror scene mostly under the radar. Available on Amazon Prime, his Memento Meets Dead Snow zombie film has a fair amount of intrigue along with choice scenes of grotesque beauty, yet falls apart when his music video career takes center stage as the film looks like it's shot for Vivo. Fortunately, Brightburn isn't shot like a music video. I can only put up with so many Dutch angles and high contrast imagery before I grow a little numb, so that's a plus. Unfortunately, I watch Brightburn late into the evening on a Friday night. I'm a big fan of Dolby Cinema screenings, and the only one for Brightburn was an 11pm showing, which means, after all the trailers and other nonsense, it was about 11.30 by the time the movie started, and 1am when it ended. To make things better, yet simultaneously worse, we made Friday night a surprise double bill and watched The Sun is Also a Star two hours prior. We were basically running across the theater to make it in time for Brightburn. But this isn't a review about The Sun is Also a Star, which was inoffensive at best, mediocre at worst. It's a Brightburn review, so let's hear what that's about, and I'll just nab the IMDb description since it works well enough. What if a child named Brandon from another world crash-landed on Earth, but instead of becoming a hero to mankind, he proved to be something far more sinister? Brightburn is rated R for horror, violence, bloody images, and language. There are about four sequences of relatively explicit gore, the second of which is vastly more frightening than the others, while the last of which is essentially a corpse on display. Also, that corpse, I think, was nude? But nudity is neither listed in the certificate, nor was the lighting of the scene bright enough to really know if that's what it was, not to mention that it was likely a prop, so do with that what you will. 
Although unlisted in the certificate, there is also an uncomfortable moment between two children that doesn't lead anywhere compromising, but based on implication and character intent, feels a little difficult to watch. But that's sort of the point of the scene. I'm not sure how the MPAA would certificate that anyway, but I'll just drop that here for anyone who is going to see or is interested in the film. There's also the talk between father and son, and I think everyone would agree that the father gives some absolutely terrible and damaging advice. And it's a little worse when it's composed with a sense of dark comedy, but again, that seemed to be the purpose of the scene, so contextually it functions how it should, but could have been written better. So, Brightburn. It's not very good. It's not bloated. It's not complicated. It's not offensive. It's just a weak film lacking substance. There's no metaphor, there's no character study, there's nothing all that frightening about the film, there's nothing to remember, there's no great set pieces, I mean, I could go on. And I think I will. There's no nuance, there's no cleverness, there's no setup or payoff, there's little to enjoy about the actor's performances, there's unintentional comedy, there's poor pacing, there's overt predictability, and there's just really stupid tropes. Let me put it this way. David Yurovesky has said he wanted to capture Michael Myers with a cape. He wanted to make something frightening, something representative of a greater evil, an overpowering presence of sinister thoughts and fetishes. Yet, what's captured in this film is far from Carpenter's Halloween. Both in the execution of the story's supposed horror, along with the clear and present R-rated superhero cash grab, everything about this seems a lot more like Sean S. Cunningham advertising an unknown film called Friday the 13th in Variety magazine. Now, maybe Brightburn wasn't trying that hard to cash grab, considering Cunningham did all that before getting the rights to the title or before the script was even finished. He was overtly cash grabbing in the most explicit of senses. But in Brightburn's case, people are thirsty for R-rated superhero films. They want something a bit more than the Marvel and DC fare, and that's all fine and dandy. But that shouldn't excuse mediocrity when it hits them in the face. But high-concept films do their jobs well simply because they're easy. What if Superman was evil? Works because anyone would go. Oh, that sounds interesting. I'd like to see what that looks like. And voila, you've got a new blockbuster. There's something to appreciate about the simplicity of Brightburn, but perhaps that's what adds to my disappointment. High-concept films don't need nuance, but I think they're often benefited from it. Refn's Drive is high-concept, and that film is lathered in nuance and character development, it's possible to add a little more than what comes across as easy, and there's some hints to that in Brightburn. Now let me first say that these next few talking points are based primarily on tiny hints of potential greatness that ultimately come without fruition. They are very loosely extracted from incredibly stupid and unintentional story beats. Except for one. I think there's one that Mark and Brian Gunn were headed for when writing Brightburn's script, but it still doesn't work, so oh well. Sorry guys, you wrote a real mess, and the one thing you wanted to get at doesn't survive it either. There's a very, very, and I can't stress this enough, very loose idea of comparing the act of raising a child to bringing a stranger into your home. Both Mark and Brian spoke into this idea amidst interviews, this idea that nobody knows who their kids are going to be, what they're going to do, what they will do with their power or talents or interests, whether or not they will go off and commit to righteousness or indulge in evils. As a concept, that's quite interesting, and I think there's a lot to be desired there. 
That idea isn't even limited by culture, as I think anyone anywhere would, for the most part, want their child to do good when they grow up. They recognize their specialties and encourage good works with their talents, fostering a mentality of care for others while also teaching a baseline for good manners and social interactions. This all may look different across borders, but I think it's a fair standard to think that, instilled in parenting, one is nurturing their offspring to do good and expecting it to pay off. But nobody knows who anyone is going to be in the future, let alone know what the future holds for themselves, so a child, in a sense, can still be considered a stranger. To deconstruct that would be fascinating, putting to face what it looks like to impart a parent's vision of their child beside what they actually are. You would basically have, we need to talk about Kevin, except with superpowers. But that doesn't happen in Brightburn. Nobody in Brightburn seems to care about expressing blind, idle fantasy over the child in comparison to legitimate, problematic issues. Which leads to another point that wasn't intentional, but could have been present in the film and honestly would have benefited it. Both Mark and Brian Gunn said that this wasn't their focus with the film, nor were they going this direction to begin with, but there is a pivotal moment in the film that alludes to a commentary on toxic masculinity. So there's a scene where Brandon, our evil Superman, is out hunting with his dad, played by David Denman. You know, Roy, from The Office. Anyway, they're hunting, and as mentioned, there's the talk. It's cringy and weird and mostly stupid, but what Roy says to Brandon is along the lines of, Sometimes it's okay to let out a little, to lash out and get what you want when you want it, you know? He says it in such a casual, awkward way that, first off, it's mostly played up as a joke, which isn't very funny, in all honesty. But second, Brandon is hearing this and thinking of a girl he's fond of at school. So imagine you're finding out you're ridiculously powerful, and just told that sometimes it's okay to do what you want, with regards to the birds and the bees. (laughs) So side note, I'm recording this and my wife heard me say birds and the bees, and she's like, why didn't you say wasps and the bees? Uh, So if you've seen the movie, you kind of get that a little more. But to get back to the review, it's wicked. And to indulge a conceptual, imaginary version of Brightburn, how fascinating would it be to see the film as a metaphor for toxic masculinity? To have a story that doesn't say men are all chauvinists and misogynists by birth, as some might have you believe, but takes the time to painstakingly show an institutionalized, methodical, self-ignorant way in which parents can indirectly contribute to their children's negative perspective on power, women, desire, respect, you name it. Now, Brian and Mark Gunn wanted to keep from glorifying Brandon's actions throughout the movie, a respectable pursuit when writing a villain, I'll add. They didn't want you to necessarily cheer him on as he did terrible things to people or exacted revenge for things people did to him. But I feel that, at least for the first bit of the film, we needed something like that. We needed a scene where we are on Brandon's side, affectionate to his struggle of finding out who he is and what he can do. Perhaps he fights back against bullies and permanently or fatally hurts a fellow student. Or maybe he's enduring an unrequited love for a classmate and it grows a little too objectifying. We would have these points where we are sympathizing and agreeing with him, yet shown a malicious perspective of what these things can do when turned to the nth degree. It would be a convicting moment where we go, wait a minute, that's what he was doing? No, I I didn't want that. Honestly, it would feel a lot like Colossal. And that's how metaphors work, right? I mean, we emphasize things, push them further to make them clear, and I think that would have made a mixture of two things. 
Number one, the film would have been vastly more interesting, proposing a character study of a young boy being taught the wrong things from his father, and then the mother is ignoring it as she's going, oh, boys will be boys, or you're my darling and you can do no wrong. Then it would bring into question who's at fault, the parents or the child. And the second point would be, it would just be more frightening. You'd have Brandon expressing a growing, seething anger and hatred as he's struggling to understand himself in juxtaposition to the world around him, a world he doesn't belong to, as well as showing how far someone born into such power can be twisted and warped into evil, both by choice or by circumstances. Then the question would be, which is worse? These ideas fascinate me despite not being in the film. And it's kind of funny. I think about how some friends have joked that I rewrite movies I don't like. And it's true. I spend time trying to think of what makes a film good or what can make them better. And in all intents and purposes, Brightburn had the potential to be great. It's high concept ease of access along with the perfect pieces to commentate on mismanagement of birthright would be wonderful to watch. And I'm a sucker for tragedies, so to watch something that had all the pieces but didn't know it was a puzzle disappoints me more than anything. And I can endure most bad films, but disappointing ones have a lasting impact on me, and oftentimes I find myself ruminating on them, wondering what went wrong, or if anyone in production saw the same issues I did, or, as happens sometimes, whether or not I'm an outlier. Even so, this film has given me more to think about than the film's worth. So let's follow this trail a little bit further before I close out. Let's talk about this theoretical version of Brightburn that doesn't exist for a moment more before we close shop and you go off to finish your work or put on another podcast. Let's talk about these non-existent themes and questions proposed by a movie I wish existed but doesn't. Now, parents, you might be telling me to put my foot in my mouth, and that's all fair considering I don't have kids. But bear with me because I look forward to having kids, and someday I will be asking myself these same questions proposed by Brightburn the Melvin Cut. In what subtle ways have I fed my children's sin? In what ways was I oblivious to the deeply rooted evils of their actions? Have I accepted that, in some sense, I don't actually know who they really are and need to trust the Lord even more than ever as this young, boundless stranger roams my household? What can I do to cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord and love for his companionship? How can I teach them to engage those around them with respect? How can I encourage them to have empathy for those in their life? How can I nurture them without restricting them? How can I love them while also chastising them? How can I embrace their skills and talents and nurture it towards a reverence for the one who gives them those gifts? How can I pray for the things they find important that I think are vacuous? How can I disagree with them but recognize that their thoughts may not be sinful and therefore are simply a difference in character? How do I reconcile that my child is born in sin, totally depraved, and may grow to be separate from the Lord's flock? First off, yikes. What a list. And that is scary. So I think I'm going to wait a little bit before I have kids. Second, with regards to those questions and Brightburn as a movie, I guess the reality is what I wanted was a film that took an R-rated superhero horror movie flair, yet demanded its audience to think about the generation after them. Obviously, I didn't get that. Mark and Brian Gunn, as its writers, didn't put much credence or care into pursuing a story like that, and that's fair. But I think about something David Yurovesky said in an interview, that Brightburn had him thinking about his elementary school days when he would watch tons of horror movies, fascinated by their flavor and presentation and recreating that fascination by drawing about them in his notebooks. 
He said his mother would get calls from the school with his teachers in a panic about what he was drawing, but his mother would assure them that it was simply creativity, that her child was special. If you've seen Brightburn, you recognize that line, that idea. You're special, Brandon. I know it. The notebook, too. I mean, Brandon is drawing in a notebook, and it's just some really wild stuff. Your Ivesky jokes, they never found the bodies as far as he was concerned, but then reminisces on the encouragement he received from his mother and how Brightburn is essentially the opposite end of what happened to him. That in some cases, sometimes, unfortunately, it isn't just creativity, it's glorification. I lament over this idea that Yerovesky saw a little spark of genius in an otherwise draw script, that as the director he couldn't have fixed some of the glaring issues by changing a few lines or editing sequences differently in post-production, that rather than making something that begged the audience to think a little more, yet also being accessible to a general audience, the team behind Brightburn elected to make a low-brow superhero slasher flick. But I'd be remiss to say that this film was a film without love. Mark and Brian Gunn writing to not glorify Brandon's actions, Yurovesky's passion for imitating greatness, James Gunn helping in the production of the film, as he and David are good friends, let alone he's brothers with Mark and Brian. There's at the very least something cute about a bunch of friends getting together to make something fun, and while I didn't think it's fun, I think I can give them credit for that, but not enough to make the film worthwhile. Maybe next time. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cinematic Doctrine. If you saw Brightburn, what did you think of it? Did you think my fictional version would have been more interesting, or was the film more than you expected? Let me know with an email to cinematicdoctrine at gmail.com, or check out the new website at cinematicdoctrine.com and comment below. I also have a letterbox list that will be linked in the show notes for every movie featured in Cinematic Doctrine, with links to each respective episode. Next week, we'll be covering Michael Doherty's Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Until then, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck. We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine, link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.